Philippians chapter 1, verses 1 through 11. Paul and Timothy, servants of Christ Jesus, to all the saints in Christ Jesus who are in Philippi, with the overseers and deacons, grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. I thank my God in all my remembrance of you, always in every prayer of mine, for you all making my prayer with joy because of your partnership in the gospel from the first day until now. And I am sure of this, that he who began a good work in you will bring it to completion at the day of Jesus Christ. It is right for me to feel this way about you all, because I hold you in my heart, for you are all partakers with me of grace, both in my imprisonment and in the defense and confirmation of the gospel. For God is my witness, how I yearn for you all with the affection of Christ Jesus. And it is my prayer that your love may abound more and more with knowledge and all discernment, so that you may approve what is excellent and so be pure and blameless for the day of Christ, filled with the fruit of righteousness that comes through Jesus Christ to the glory and praise of God. It's the word of the Lord. Amen. Thank you, Austin. Now, I'm not sure if you're aware of this, but the church, the Western church, is not at the center of the culture's affection, if you will. When we, le- when we, when we think about culture, Western culture, the church, a lot of people don't, don't necessarily like it. Have you guys noticed that? <laughs> if you talk to younger people, if you hang out in the coffee shops, the church is an object not only of a lack of affection, but sometimes of disdain, and often for good reason. And I'm not sure if you're aware of this, but the church has been filled with scandal. Throughout history, there are people who have been abused by those in power in the church. The church has done things in the name of Christ that have given a black eye to the cause of Christ, so to speak. And some people just outright reject the church and reject Christianity. And then there's another group that kind of has a nuance to that. And you see this more and more. People who kind of like Jesus, but not the church, not his disciples, not Christianity, so to speak. But for better or worse, according to the founder, those two come as a package deal. You can't take Jesus and not take his church. They come together. And apparently Paul would have it no other way. Because in this passage, one thing we see is that Paul tends to have great joy in the church. Even though in Paul's day, much like today, the church was filled with scandal. If you do a historical background on the church of Philippi, they are divided It is a broken church where people are fighting. So there's oppression on the outside of the church, but then there's division within the church. The church is filled with scandal. The church always seems to be ripe with scandals. Because there's broken and distorted behavior going on behind the doors, yet Paul is still able to take joy in God's people. Why? What would give Paul joy in this church? Why would we want to be part of the church today? Well, Paul gives us three reasons in this passage. 
that we're going to explore. One is that in the church, we get an incomparable identity. Two, in the church, we receive a transforming community. And three, that in the church, we get to engage in a world-changing mission that's actually bigger than our own life. Those are the things Paul delights in. So let's dive right in. Number one, an incomparable identity. What is that identity that we see Paul refer to here? Well, it's right in verse one. The identity is, he says, Paul and Timothy, servants of Christ Jesus to all the saints in Christ. The identity that we receive in the church is to be a saint. Literally, that word saint means what? It means holy ones in Christ Jesus. And when we think saints, I think what we often think of is like this distinct group within the church. It's like super Christians that have it all down. They live these super holy lives. They fast five days a week. You guys know what I'm talking about, right? But the Bible doesn't look at saints that way. It doesn't look at this small group within the church. The Bible talks about saints being the entire community. Everyone in the church is a saint. And one of the things we have to get straight right away is the meaning of that word. Because first and foremost, that word, saint, does not refer to our morals. That's what we think, I think, oftentimes. The holy, pure, holier-than-thou people that set a good example. But the primary meaning of that word is to be set apart. What's being said about us when we're called holy ones or saints isn't that we have somehow been good enough. It's not that we've somehow earned it, but that God has set us apart through the work of Christ. That we've been set apart by God and we've been set apart unto God. Can we make ourselves holy? No, we don't, we don't have it in ourselves to make ourselves holy. That's God's action, and he did that for us in Christ. He sets us apart, how? By setting his love upon us. That is, you're set apart in as much as you're loved by God, and that's what he's done for us in Christ Jesus. In Christ, God has fixed his love upon you in an irrevocable way, in an unassailable way. And in doing that, he's brought us out of our bondage to sin. He set us apart into his family, and he's placed his love upon us in a strong and unique way. That's what it means to be a saint, to have God fasten his love upon us. That's your primary identity if you're in the church. You are a saint. And that's a wonderful identity. Think about it. You're, you're loved by the God of the universe. That's crazy. He set his love upon you in a unique, in a profound, in an unshakable way. But when we begin to think about that, that being set apart by God, that him setting his love upon us is the primary means of holiness, that we're saints irrespective of our moral behavior, then we begin to understand why there's so much scandal in the church, right? Think about it. If saint isn't an indicator of someone's morals, but it's primarily a relational term, then you can have churches full of broken people who are loved by God. You know, we hear those terms saints and sinners, and I think we often think of good people and bad people. We think of maybe a scale, a continuum of people going from being bad to becoming good. 
going from being a sinner to being a saint. But in Scripture, those terms aren't based on our moral behaviors. Both saints and sinners can be good people and bad people. You can have great temperaments, wonderful, pure, holy, loving people that are saints and sinners. And you can have mean-spirited, angry, ugly, rude people that are both saints and sinners, right? Now, those terms don't describe our moral behavior. Saint and sinner describe our relationship to God. Saints have a relationship that's been made right. It's been restored, and God has done that through Christ. He lived a perfect life in our place, and he died a death that we should have died, and then he rose again three days afterward and overcame the power of death, hell, and the grave for us. That's good news, right? And so because of that, if we live in Christ, we now have the benefits that come from his life, death, and resurrection. They're given to us. Forgiveness, right standing with God. Jesus' very own character becomes ours. We can never be saints in and of ourselves. We are saints in Christ. That's what it says in verse 1. To all the saints in Christ. One translator said it this way. I love this. He said, to those who are holy through their union in Christ. It's by uniting us in Jesus that God sets us apart. So think about it this way. You're holy in as much as you're loved by God. So if you're in Christ, how much is Christ loved by God? It's am- There's no greater love in the universe, is there? He's loved, he's accepted fully, 100%. So you're more loved than you can imagine, and that means you're more holy than you can imagine because you're in Christ, because God looks at you in Christ Jesus. And there's no richer, deeper love. So that love comes to us irrespective of our morals because it comes to us through Jesus Christ by being united in him. Now that doesn't mean that, that our morals don't matter. That doesn't mean that that relationship doesn't affect our moral behavior. It must, and it does. But our inauguration into sainthood, if you will, and even our ability to remain, our continual standing, is not based on how good or how bad we are. It's based on how good Christ was in our place. And if you understand that, then you begin to understand why the church is so messed up. And there's no need to hide the fact that it is. The church is pretty broken. Why? Because all the people who make up the church are deeply flawed. This week I was hanging out at my coffee shop, and I was talking to a gal, and and I asked her, I said, so you grew up in church, why aren't you in the church anymore? And she proceeded to give me a long list of everything she didn't like about the church. And you know, initially I kind of felt that impulse to kind of defend the church, but then I thought about it, you know what? She's experienced those things. She feels that way. She feels like there are bigoted people in the church. There are judgmental people in the church. She's experienced that. Why do I defend that? It's true. The church is full of broken people. The church is messed up because it's made up of me and you. And apart from God's grace, we're pretty messed up people, if we admit it, right? In our own hearts. Um. In fact, that's one of the prerequisites. It's a requirement to get in. You have to be a mess. The the slogan for the church isn't, I'm okay, you're okay. The slogan from the church is, I'm a mess, you're a mess. 
One person said the church is a hospital for sinners. I, I love that. That's, it's so true, right? The church is a hospital for sinners. It, it, the church might be more than that, but it's definitely not less than that. It's a hospital for sinners. And the Christian life is a convalescence, a long convalescence, and a difficult one because in this hospital for sinners, you have the patients shooting one another and wounding one another and passing their diseases on to one another and, and self-inflicted wounds, right? The church is a sordid institution with all kinds of problems, and yet Paul, fully aware of that, still calls them saints, See, as bad as our behavior is, we are still holy ones because we've been united to Christ Jesus. And that's why so many people write off the church. This arrangement that you're allowed in even when you're a mess, that you're allowed in, people think somehow there ought to be higher standards to get in. So they write the church off in contempt. They have disdain for the church because God welcomes broken people in and then lets them, like, People stay broken. What? The church is full of hypocrites. Have you guys heard that? Yeah, it, it is. <laughs> We're broken. We profess one thing and often we don't live up to the things we profess. But God knows something that I think we often forget. And that, that's that nobody gets in and nobody stays in except by this arrangement. He also knows that it's only in this environment where you are fully accepted as an object of God's unconditional love and passionate love for you that personal transformation can take place. Because in this environment, you're finally secure. You're secure. It's not based on what you do to stay in. We stay in because God holds on to us, not because we hold on to him then confident that he's holding on to us, we're set free. We're given the desire by the gospel, empowering of the Holy Spirit to want to obey, not because we get anything from our obedience, but because we've already been given everything. God's lavished his love upon us. And now we want to change, so we are saints. And the more we trust in that, and the more we believe that and rest in that, the more our lives will begin to reflect that. And that brings us to our second point, that the church is a transforming community. It's an environment where we can actually experience personal transformation. And Paul expects nothing less. Look at verse 6. And I'm sure of this, that he that began a good work in you will bring it to completion at the day of Jesus Christ. Now, I'm sure that God is at work in everyone's lives, whether they know it or not, but in a very unique and special way, God is at work in those who are in the church to transform them, to change their character, to make them reflect his character more and more and enter back in into what it means to be truly human. And he's begun that process, we're told here, and he's going to see it through because God finishes what he starts is that good news for anybody today? Yeah. A spattering of applause makes the room even more tense. His work of salvation, he began it, and guess who's going to see it through? Is it you? 
Tim. Is it your good works that are going to make you saved? Whose work is it? His. That's right. So we can be completely confident in that. And, that, and that's a relief, right? Because if my only reason for being in the church and my only hope of remaining in the church is that I've chosen Christ rather than that he has set his love upon me and chosen me, I'd be in a miserable place. Because as humans, we're pretty fickle. I don't know about you guys, but man, I blow out one day, cold the next. One day I'm up, the next day I'm down. We're subject to fits and starts. And sometimes our, 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 you know, our desire to do something is like firm and solid, and the next day it's wishy-washy. But we're told here that God is the one who holds on to us. That what he started, he will finish. And I remember as a kid thinking, oh man, I sinned. Now I'm not saved anymore. I better get it right. I better repent because God, I, I had this vision of God almost being this like small-minded bookkeeper in heaven that was tallying my sins and my righteous acts. It looked like he had a pencil with the Lamb's book of life. He erased my name every time I sinned and then I'd repent and he'd write my name back in. Okay, now you're going to heaven again. And it's a good thing the rapture didn't take place before I repented because then I'd be part of Tim LaHaye's series. I'd be left behind. And but the truth is, what is the truth about God? We're, in, we're, we're finite. We're subject to limitations. Our brains cannot be, begin to grasp how grand and great the infinite God is. What does scripture say? In the beginning, God created. God, even time is something God created. God stands outside of time. Scripture says in Isaiah that God sees the end from the beginning. God sees your entire life laid out before him. Have you thought about how great God is? That if you're in Christ, God already sees you perfect in Christ. That when Jesus Christ went to the cross... And he died on the cross. His work in your life was finished at that moment. And now every day isn't a day of me perfecting and building upon his work. It's more or less me understanding what he's already done and entering into that with deeper faith and realization and trust and belief. You becoming like Christ isn't your hard work. It's his. Then Paul goes on in prayer to detail what that looks like. He says that part of the transformation is making us more loving people. Look at, look at verse 9. I love this prayer. And it is my prayer that your love may abound more and more with knowledge and all discernment so that you may approve what is excellent and so be pure and blameless for the day of Christ filled with with the fruit of righteousness that comes through Jesus Christ, the glory and praise of God. See, at the heart of this work that God is doing in us is to make us more tender, more compassionate, more, more capable of love. And how, how do we become more capable of love? Can we do that in a vacuum? Can we do that all by ourselves? No, no, no man is an island, right? We need one another. We need community. 
So we're set into this community. We're adopted into this family. And it's not a family of our choosing. I mean, frankly, sometimes it's a family of people we would rather not hang around with. And by your laughter, I'll take that as a vote of confidence in what I just said. We don't always get along with everyone, yet we're called to love them. How are we called to love them? Like Jesus. That's what he says. It's the love of Jesus himself. Paul says, I long for you with all the affection of Christ Jesus. And affection here means bowels. The center of who you are. Try that on for size next time you tell somebody you love them. I love you from my bowels. You move me. <laughs> Ditto. <laughs> Not everyone is easy to love, are they? Not everyone is. If you've been married, you know that. They're easy to love on date one. <laughs> it's easy to love somebody, to fall in love when you're dating them, and you see them in one-hour increments when they put on their best. But man, the moment we get to know one another, I do not know, it is by the grace of God that my wife has stayed with me. Once she saw how piles of clothes trail me, <laughs> and every time I cook, it's the same thing. <laughs> they're different from me they aren't cool they're rude I don't like them love love them with the love that comes from the core of Jesus what does that love look like Jesus loves us just as we are and he loves us too much for us to stay that way and as the fruit, the love comes into our life, it works what he says in verse 11, the fruit of righteousness. The fruit of righteousness is exhibited more and more in our lives. It's righteousness, joy, peace, gentleness, hope, faithfulness, self-control. And that happens a couple of different ways. One is as we kind of bump into each other through the grind of life. And I, if you've been around at, at all, you'll know I've used this example, but the rock tumbler. Anybody familiar with a rock tumbler? I should have put a picture up here. You basically take these rocks that are dirty and gnarly and they've got rough edges and you put them in together and you just start tumbling them around together. And as they knock into one another and as they rub on each other and friction's created, guess what happens? A few moments later you pull them out and they're, they're beautiful. All the rough edges have been knocked off and the true beauty that was inside has come to the surface. And that's what community is like. Sometimes it's tough. Sometimes we're bumping into each other. Sometimes there's friction. But God is perfecting you. God has put beauty into you. This saintly identity is within you. The very righteousness of God is part of your DNA. It's been infused. You've been changed, and that's starting to come to the surface more and more. And that, that process tends to be more of a reactive one more of something that happens in the bump and grind of life. It's, it's not very deliberate, but there's a proactive, deliberate activity we're called to engage in as well. The scriptures use the analogy of iron sharpening iron. And I don't know, has anybody here ever worked in a restaurant 
or yeah. So you know that chefs, when the, when the knife goes dull, is it any useful? Is it any good? No, you got to sharpen it, right? And so you take the iron out, shing, 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 and you sharpen it. Just remember that sound, shing, 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 shing. It's a very accurate sound. <laughs> right? But what we're called to do in the church is to lovingly approach one another, to sharpen one another intentionally. That is, where we see one another not living in light of this new saintly identity that we've been given, we're called to, to mention it to each other. Humbly, lovingly, patiently, gently. But we're called to mention it nonetheless. To speak the truth in love. Right? Dietrich Bonhoeffer says it this way, nothing is more cruel than the tenderness that consigns another person to their sin. In other words, if you avoid approaching fellow believers just so that you'll be well thought of at the other person's expense, that's extremely cruel. That's avoiding discipleship. It's actually enabling people to go on in their life as it was without the truth of God shining a light on it. Instead, we're meant to go to one another, trusting that we may actually get more respect from them in the long run, especially if they know we're for them. I mean, I, I want to just tell you guys this. Speaking the truth in love means this. Somebody actually knows you love them. You're walking in relationship with them. Ask yourselves, if they came to me to say something to me, would I feel, if they said it in a loving way, would I feel like they know me well enough to actually say that? Or to actually ask me that question. Do I have a strong enough sense of love and relationship with this person that if I speak the truth to them, they'll actually receive it? They'll know I'm for them. They'll know I, I care. Or will they reject it? And will they be hurt? Will they be wounded? You guys know what I'm saying? And that's a unique community where people care enough about one another to approach one another where you can experience personal transformation. That's the kind of community that the church, with, with all of its problems, is. That's the second reason why Paul says we ought to be involved in the church. But there's one more. Paul says to be part of the church is to be part of something that is bigger than yourself, a world-changing mission that's bigger than your life. I, I know this from talking to, to everyone in my life. We tend to live these Better safe than sorry lives. We live for our own comfort so much. We so carefully avoid pain that it's no wonder we get stuck in the hamster wheel of boring day in, day out reality. If you're just concerned about yourself, always looking inward, that invariably shrinks you. Your world gets smaller, you become less and less of a person. So it's no wonder to me that our, our generation, the younger generation that's coming up, Generation Y, has this hunger to rebuild and do something greater than themselves, to look out, because our culture's starving for mission bigger than ourselves. A project that doesn't shrink us, but actually expands us. And in the church, we get that. We get that in the church. And what is it? It's the spread of the best news ever. That's what we get to take place in. Paul says that in verse 5. I thank my God 
in all my remembrance of you, always in every prayer of mine for you all, making my prayer with joy. Because of what? Because of your partnership in the gospel from the first day until now. We're all involved in this together, says Paul. What's the gospel? It's it's the good news of reconciliation. Reconciliation is that restoration, right? Restoring something to its proper order of relationship. Some of us need some gospel in our lives right now. We need some restoring of relationships, restoring of our hearts to see things from God's perspective. We live in a world where almost everything is out of its proper relationship. Everything's out of whack. It's a jacked up world. Our relationships with God are messed up. Our relationships with each other, just walk down the grocery aisle and look at the magazines, right? Watch a few reality shows. You see our relationships with each other are pretty messed up. And our relationship with the world, famine, brokenness, war, injustice, racism, poverty, The good news of the gospel is that God is setting things right, that God is rescuing and renewing all creation in and through the work of Jesus. That through the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus Christ, God has acted to restore everything back to its proper relationship. He's at work whacking back into place, if you were, everything that's out of whack. And he does this first, how? By by pulling us back into proper relationship with himself. With himself, And as that relationship thrives, it carries over into our relationships with one another, carries over into our relationships with our work, carries over into our relationship with the world. How? Well, as soon as that relationship starts to take control of you, it affects everything. It changes and informs how everything, how you view everything in this life. When you live that kind of life, you live the kind that Paul describes here at the end of the passage, a life that's lived for the glory and praise of God. Is that the life you're living? The ultimate end of our life is to live in a way that gives glory to God, in a way that makes his character known in a world that's long since forgotten. So in the way you do do your work, in the way we raise our families, in the way we care for our friends and spend our finances, in the way we eat and play and create and rest and celebrate, in the way we live this life, we seek to make God's intentions for all those things more luminous. And in doing that, we show his character. We make it more lustrous. We make it more appealing to people by living lives that display the gospel in word and deed, by being partners in it, sharing the gospel. We bring praise and glory to God. See, in the church, you become part of something bigger than yourself. And your cause is guaranteed because it's, it's God's cause. And he's going to do it. So you're removed from being part of the problem and placed into being part of the solution. And only in the church are we in a position to really bring genuine cure for what ails the world. Only here because... The gospel is the only thing that truly transforms us at a heart level and changes everything. So why be part of the church? What good news do we have? What joy do we have? Well, it's because we're given an incomparable identity. Right now, you're a saint of God if you're in Christ. Holy one of God. And in the church, we're given a transforming community. Your life is actually getting better. 
as you trust, as you walk in community, growing and transforming. And lastly, we're given a world-changing mission that can truly make the difference. And my prayer is that for those of you who haven't yet become part of the church, that you would do that. That you consider that. That you would consider being baptized into His body. That you'd surrender to the love of God. That you'd believe the gospel. And maybe even today, you'd come down and for the first time join in and take communion. And if you're part of that already, if you're part of the church, my prayer is that you'd enter into it more fully. Because you can't experience the joy Paul experienced by being half-hearted in your commitment. It requires fully investing yourself into the one who's invested his all to you. I'm going to pray, lead us in prayer, and then the band's going to come. Lead us in one more song, and we're going to take communion and take some time to really process through what God has been saying to our hearts during this time. If you're new here, I want to challenge you to feel free to come on down, join a circle. If you're a believer, take communion. If not, just listen in to the stories and, and the life change that's going on around you in the communion circle. If you're nervous about it and you don't quite want to, I'll be out in the hallway. I'd love to meet up with you and, and get to know you. Um, but let's, let's pray and let's worship with one more song, then we'll come take communion together. God, we're thankful for your wisdom. You could have given us any missional plan to change the world. But you don't have a plan B. Your plan is the church. Your plan is your family called out from the broken ways of the world to live as a community of light, as, as millions of communities of light all around the world to show the world what you're like to make disciples, to point people to the best life, to what it means to be truly human. What wisdom in your plan, God. And thank you that the pressure of, of living that life as the church isn't something that rests on our shoulders, but it's something that you took upon your shoulders as you lived a perfect life. That we try to live, but we, we fail at, we fall so short, yet you did it for us. Thank you that you went to a cross in our place and died a death that Scripture says we all would deserve apart from your grace so that we could have life in you. And thank you that you rose victorious over sin and death. You made a mockery of sin. In effect, you danced on the grave of death so that we would have nothing to fear, so that we could know that we live in a sure victory that was purchased by your blood. And I pray that we would live in lives that increasingly display that victory to our community, to, to ourselves, to our own hearts that sometimes fail to believe that, and to a world around us that's longing for something greater. And thank you that in all this, we have a joy that's unshakable because of what you've done. Thank you so much. Have your way in our hearts as we worship and take communion here in Jesus' name.